high priestly prayer of our Lord. John chapter 17. It's an amazing thing to consider how the Lord, our Lord, prayed, and He prayed for us as well, just hours before He would go to the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before He would suffer at the hands of men and go to the cross and give up His life and bear the wrath of the Father, which we deserved. In this high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for his consecration, as we've studied for several verses. Then he prays for his disciples that were there with him. And then he prays for all believers who would believe on him. And as we come to the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer, we have looked at several marks or characteristics of a believer and of a church. And Jesus ends this prayer on love, praying about love. This should be no surprise to us, considering at the beginning of his farewell address, he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Apostle Paul said, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And Jesus, of course, being our highest authority, speaks on the love we are to have for one another. But that's not all he says in these verses this morning as I will ask the Lord to help me and to help you once again. Oh God, I am in desperate need of the Holy Spirit of God to move through me, to assist me, to keep me. I am nothing without you, oh Lord. I am an empty vessel. I pray that you would fill me and I pray you would give ears to hear this morning to those under the sound of my voice that you would give hearts pliable to change where needed. O Lord, that you would wake up the slumbering saint, that you would encourage the awakened saint. And Lord, that we would leave here changed where needed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. First point, seeing the glory of God. Seeing the glory of God. We begin in verse, we'll start in verse 22. Our verses for us this morning are 24, 25, and 26. But in 22, Jesus says, as he is praying to the Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. First verse for us, first point for us, seeing the glory of God. Verse 24, Father, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also who you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Breaking this down, we have Jesus praying to and acknowledging God the Father as as Father, right? Very basic, yes, but important to recognize. Jesus is explaining here his desire in this part of the prayer of what his desire is for his people. And he is praying, once again, we are confronted with the fact that he is praying for a particular people. They, he prays for they, those whom you have given me. Here we have the covenant of redemption once again. We have seen this phrase before. We have seen this description before in this chapter. Verse 2, to all who you have given me, he may give eternal life. To those who the Father gives the Son, the Son gives to them eternal life. Contrast to that, those not given to the Son by the Father, Jesus does not give eternal life to, but the wrath of God will remain on them. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. This chapter helps us tremendously. Hopefully it has helped all of you tremendously as we have gone through this chapter to understand that Jesus is praying for a particular people. He does not pray for the world. And Jesus died for a particular people. He did not die specifically for the atonement for for all men. For all do not get saved. All do not get converted. He died for his, his people. And we have here again in verse 24, those whom you have given me. So he's praying to and acknowledging God as a father. Jesus boldly explains his will to the father. I desire, he says, I desire that they also whom you have given me. He's prays, he prays for this particular people, those from, for whom Christ died for. And Jesus prays specifics for his people. He doesn't just say, I pray for them. He says, I pray that they may be with me so that, purpose clause, so that they will see my glory. Back to the beginning of this verse, Jesus 
says, I desire or I want. This verb here expresses an action of the will. It is not merely a a wish. We see Jesus at other times praying, not what I will, but what you will, he prays to the Father. Here it is a prayer of what Jesus desires. It is he wills this to happen. He prays many things for his people thus far. Sanctify them, keep them. He prays for our holiness, for our unity, that we would be kept from the evil one. And here Jesus is looking forward to something, looking forward to the gathering of his people in glory. You know how we have that phrase that we're, we're looking forward to it? You say, oh, I'll look forward to that. Or, oh, we're, we'll see you then. Oh, I look forward to it. Or there's an event coming up and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We use that vernacular and it's fine and dandy to do so. I use that vernacular. But here Jesus is desiring to be with his people so that they would see, so that we would see his glory. He prays for all of his people to be with him. His desire is for his followers to be where I am, he says. And where is Jesus going? He's going to be with the Father. And he wants those for whom he died to be with him. Jesus looks forward to the day of his return, to the day when we will be with him forever. This is here assurance of our salvation. I've heard this uh, mentioned several times in several different arenas recently asking, well, how can we have assurance of our salvation? Oftentimes, we rely on our feelings for things. Do we not? But we have assurance of our salvation, true Christians do, because of what God says and because of what Christ has done. And we see that throughout chapter 17 for who Christ prays for, for who he dies for. And Jesus says that his desire is for them to be with him. That should give us assurance because what Jesus wants, for lack of a better way of putting it, Jesus gets and he will have. The assurance of our salvation is founded and grounded on the will of Christ who conquered sin and death in his resurrection. Assurance based on truth, not feelings. Now, feelings are are great. We have feelings, we have emotions, but we base our assurance of faith on what God's word says. And Jesus says that he desires for his people to be with him. Isn't that our desire as well, to be with Jesus? And secondarily, by way of application, shouldn't that be our desire too, to be with the people of God as well? Or do we cannot stand being around other people who are Christians? That should never be named among us. 
Well, there may be a few in our lives that's hard, but I digress. But what did the Apostle Paul says? Go to Philippians, and we're going to come back to John, but go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read a few verses here, 22, 23, 24, and then we're going to go back and just look at these verses, make some observations. What Paul says here, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, excuse me, verse 21 through 24. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know, I do not know which, <clears throat> excuse me, which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So let us consider this, what, Paul, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Okay, for him and for the Christian to, to live as Christ and to die is gain. So death for us is gain to the Christian, for the Christian. Amen, hallelujah, yes. But Paul says, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I'm hard pressed, he says. In other words, he is torn. We use that vernacular. I'm torn between these two things. Or I'm torn between this decision. This I'm just torn. But this is not a man who is um, like Eeyore, or he's not a man who is, woe is me, nothing good in my life has happened. I know where I'm going when I die, so I just want to go. I'm just going to sit around. I'm not going to do anything for the Lord. I know where I'm going, and uh, when's death going to happen, and, and all of this. No, he, he, he wants to be with Christ, but he is, he's torn because he knows that him being here on earth, he can still be effective for Christ. He's hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, to, to be with Jesus, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And for us as Christians to remain on in this world, we ought to say it is necessary for us to still be here, to do what God has us to do. Not to kick back, not to say, woe is me, but to say, God, what can I do? I want to be with you and I will be with you one day, but what can I do now? This is the dilemma of a man who, who knows his God and who is serving his God. To depart to be with Christ, there is no purgatory, there is no holding tank. To depart from this earth as a Christian is to be with Jesus Christ, absent in the body, present with the Lord. But he is here remaining for a purpose, to know God and to make him known. Back to John 17. 
Consider that simple phrase, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. I'll never forget, and I probably mentioned it one or two times before. If I start mentioning stuff like five or six times, you know, like 20, 15, 15, 30 years from now, however, I'm getting old. But no time soon. But I remember in Florida one time walking out of a Walmart, and there was a guy set up there with t- selling T-shirts. And they were all Christian T-shirts, you know? Some of them were very nice. Others were kind of lame. But I had these logos on it and stuff. And I was talking to him, and he was an ex-drug addict. And I said, oh, are you a Christian? He's like, absolutely. And he was going in his testimony and stuff. But he had a T-shirt there. And I think I bought it. I don't remember. But it said, Jesus Christ is life, and the rest is just details. In other words, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. But this verse in John, as Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Okay, so here's the purpose clause, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Here's what uh, Hendrickson says. Jesus desires that all that those given to him shall dwell forever in his immediate presence in order that they may delight forever in the vision of the glory of God in Christ. A vision which begins here on earth, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and receives its climax in heaven. So the, these glimpses of glory that we as Christians get now, but it's nothing compared to the glory which we will see when we see the Lord. The word see here is better rendered behold, that they may behold my glory. Present tense verb, that they may keep on beholding. It's not like, oh, one time we behold his glory and that's it and we move on with something else. No, keep on beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. Isn't that our goal in, 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 as glimpses here on earth? Much for us to look forward to. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And Jesus prays that we would see his glory, the glory that the Father has given to the Son, He looks forward and sees himself at the the right hand of the Father and he wills that or he desires that his people, which us included who are Christians, will join him there. Join with him in glory. So can a Christian have assurance of their salvation? Be sure that they will go to heaven? Yes, indeed. Because it is based on what the Lord says. Christ wills that we would be with him where he is going. Our perseverance is based on what he wants and on his promises. Uh, Richard Phillips says, by the way, if you're ever in Greenville, South Carolina, visit Second Presbyterian Church. They have what's called a parlor room. It's pretty old, pretty interesting. Richard Phillips is the, uh, the reverend there. Anyhow, he says this. Jesus claims a right to exercise his will in the presence of the Father, namely his redeeming work for our salvation. 
Jesus comes forth as high priest for the people whose names he bears, offering his blood to fulfill the covenant with the Father. The writer of the Hebrews grounds our blessing on the blood of the eternal covenant by virtue of which Christ speaks with the right of salvation on behalf of those for whom he came to die. So his prayer shows us the assurance of salvation and also the love that he has in his heart for his people. Remember we said we'd see the mind of Christ in this prayer. We see the heart of Christ for his people as well. As he is praying, he is preparing to enter into the garden where he will be, he will be betrayed. And still here he prays for his flock. Indeed, he is, as Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. This also shows us that Christ always existed, and he had a pre-incarnate consciousness about him. In chapter 17, verse 5, Now, Father, he says, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Also, we Christians were thought of chosen before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he predestined us to adoption. So first, seeing the glory of God. Second, knowing the glory of God. Verse 25. Jesus, as he said in verse 24, Father... Verse 25, he's still praying, O righteous Father. It's interesting to consider sometimes when we're praying, we say, Lord, and then we pray, and then we again say, Lord, or we address with an attribute to God, of righteousness, O righteous Father, however we are praying. And Jesus here says, Father, and then he prays and he says, O righteous Father knowing the glory of, the, of God. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. These last two verses, verse 25 and 26, are retrospective. They are looking backward. Jesus recognizes his Father as righteous Father, the righteousness of God. We're reminded of the character of God, character of the Father here. Then we see an immediate contrast with the world, immediate contrast with those who, who follow the Lord and those of the world. He says, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. We also have an important key word, know. Know or knowing. We saw this early on in chapter 17. 
And we also saw the, the knowledge of God as we glanced at 2 Peter chapter 1 Sunday evening. The world does not know God. Anyone who is not in Christ does not know God. Only those who know Christ know God, the Father. Also, the knowledge of God is the source of Christian love. Verse 25, the world has not known you, yet I have known you, says the Lord. These have known that you have sent me. So in summarization here, the world does not know God. We understand that. Yet they know that God exists. Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. People who refuse to submit to Jesus Christ are suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. That's what the scripture says. The world rejects Jesus Christ. They reject the fact that he came down from heaven to this earth, lived on this earth, fully God, fully man, sinless Savior. As we have seen through the Gospel of John, the world rejects him. The religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they rejected him. They were the ones who should have embraced their Messiah. Instead, they crucified him. Jesus says, I have known you. This deep communion he has with the Father. This relationship with the Father, this intra-Trinitarian relationship that the Godhead, Godhead has, this relationship and, and bond, if I could say it that way. These have known that you, the Father, sent me, the Son. The knowledge of the disciples related to the Incarnation. They knew that God, the Father, sent Jesus Christ. And don't we know that as well? When we are regenerated, when God regenerates us, when he saves our soul, we, we believe. Then we know God. We know the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we, we gain a great understanding of the incarnation. As we study the word of God, as we hear the word of God, Practically and experientially, we begin to know God more and more by the means of grace he provides, through the study of his word, through prayer and sitting under his word being preached. Remember J.I. Packer's book I referenced several times, Knowing God? There's two more copies out there, at least there was the other day. Highly recommend reading that. Several evidences of knowing God, I'll just go over these again briefly. This is from Packer's book, but I wanted to bring them to the forefront once again, lay them on the table for us, as he suggests, uh, based on the life of Daniel. I'll give these four quickly. Those who know God have great energy for God. Now, energy, does that mean, well, I'm tired in the morning, maybe not in the evening? I don't think that's what he's talking about there. Those who know God have great zeal, have passion for God. Secondly, those who know God have great thoughts of God. How do we get great thoughts of God? We don't generate those on our own. That would be the Spirit of God. That would be from the Word of God. Thirdly, those who know God show great boldness for God. Don't we need more bold men and Christians today? And bold women Boldness for God. 
I keep hearing stories of all these, these churches and these places, these mega churches popping out, and they're doing these weird things. And this is in New Hampshire. I never thought that this would, these would haunt me up here as well. Leading people into these ways that are not what the Scripture teaches. No, we need to have great boldness for God. Maybe some of us think, well, things are settling down a little bit. No, they're not. No, they're not. We need to be bold for Christ. Those who know God have great contentment in God. Now, contentment is something that is learned, right? Paul was content with much, content with little. Sometimes that comes the hard way, contentment, doesn't it? And we're not always content in, in, in God as we should be. We want our own thing, our own deal, our own way. My way or the highway, sometimes we think. If we desire such knowledge, okay, to, to know God, have great energy for God, to know God, have great thoughts of God, to know God, show great boldness for God, those who know God have great contentment in God, do we desire such knowledge of God, he asks the question. Then we must follow these two solutions. First, we must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God, learning to measure ourselves by how much we pray, or excuse me, by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Second, we must seek the Savior more and more. Third point for us, manifesting the love of God. So we have seen the glory of God, knowing the glory of God, and then manifesting the love of God. Verse 26. And I have made your name known to them. There's that phrase again, your name. Known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus has revealed the Father's name, his nature and character to his followers. Steve Lawson says, just as you would exegete or extract the meaning out of a passage of Scripture, Jesus has come to exegete the Father to us. In John 12, verse 45, Jesus says, He who sees me sees the one who sent me, and in John 14, verse 9, Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And considering this phrase, your name, reminding of us of a couple of Old Testament scriptures for us this morning. First Chronicles 17 and verse 24. Let your name be established and magnified forever. And Psalm 9, verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. And Psalm 99, verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name Holy is he. Jesus says, he asks, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, and they may be one even as we are. And then Paul says in Philippians 2, God highly exalted him, highly exalted Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Jesus says he will make it known again. How? When? I have made your name known to them, he says, and I will make it known. How and when? Well, two main options here. First, it could be in the revelatory work of the cross. 
I mean, that is preparing to happen here shortly from where we are in John 17. Or they could be referring to the work of the Holy Spirit who he promised to send. Most likely this is referring to the cross because of the immediate statement after that. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them. We know the love of God because God has revealed his love to us. The greatest act of love he has ever shown humanity is by sending his son to die on a cross for wretched, horrible, hell-deserving sinners like you and me. That's how we know what love is. God has shown us. So a little step-by-step here. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God has made his name known to us through his love shown to us at the cross where love and sorrow met together. The greatest act of love was God giving up his son to die for us. The only person who gets a taste of this type of love that the father has for the son and that the son has for the father is the one who God has set his love upon. And that is indeed the Christian, the child of God. We've looked at several characteristics or marks of the people of God found in chapter 17. Things we should see within the local church. Things and and descriptions that we find and say, this is a true child of God. Holiness and sanctification. Truth. Our witness. Unity and joy. And the love, love, the love described, and this he described when he began his last meeting with his disciples, as I mentioned, chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus, or the the scripture says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And here Jesus concludes his prayer to the Father, emphasizing love, so that the love which you you have loved me may be in them and I in them. James Boyce says the following, Subtract love from holiness. What do you get? You get self-righteousness, the kind of virtue that characterized the Pharisees of Jesus' day. By the standards of the day, the Pharisees lived very holy lives, but they did not love others and were ready to kill Christ when he challenged their standards and actually did kill him. They were hypocrites. Take love from truth. Please silence your cell phones as well. Please take love from truth and you have bitter orthodoxy. The kind of teaching that is right but does not win anyone. Take love from mission 
and you have imperialism, he says. It is colonialism in ecclesiastical garb. We have seen much of that in recent history. Take love from unity and you soon will have tyranny. This develops in a hierarchical church where there is no compassion for people nor a desire to involve them in the decision-making process. That is one side of it, he says, voice says. On the other hand, express love in relation to God and man, and what do you find? You find all the other marks of the church following. What does love for God the Father lead to? Joy, because we rejoice in God and what he has overwhelmingly done for us. What does love for the Lord Jesus Christ lead to? Holiness. Because we know that we will one day see him and one day we will be like him. Therefore, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What does love for the word of God lead us to? Truth. Because if we love the word, we will study it and therefore inevitably grow into a fuller appreciation and realization of God's truth. What does a love for the world lead to? Mission. We have a message to take to the world. Again, where does the love for our Christian brothers and sisters lead to? Unity. Because by love we discern that we are bound together in the bundle of life that God himself has created within the Christian community. End quote. As Jesus says here, so that the love which, I, which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Consider that conclusion, that clause there rather, deserving our attention. I in them. It teaches us that the only way in which we are included in that love which he mentions is that Christ would dwell in us. And that is only true for the child of God. That is only true for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their souls. I'll end with 1 John chapter 4. Please turn there. Follow along with me, if you would, please. Let us be encouraged, rebuked, corrected, whatever the Lord would have for us from these final verses. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time you have given us in chapter 17 of your word, the Gospel of John, that we are able to read, reflect, and meditate upon how Jesus prayed to the Father. And as, Lord, as you end on the necessity of love and love as defined by you, not by this world, help us in the areas that we need help with regarding love for you and love for others because we fall way short we still have remaining sin. And Lord, for those in here this morning who have not bowed the knee to Christ, we pray that you would wrestle them down today, arrest their hearts, and that they would repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls this day, and that you would be pleased to grant them eternal life for your glory. In Jesus' name.